Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Gamer's Tavern. If my voice sounds a little bit funny, it's because I'm recording this intro on my old USB headset since the studio is still packed up from Comic Palooza. Speaking of, we had an absolute blast at the convention and recorded what I think is a really unique episode that we'll have up for you next week. But for now, we're going to be wrapping up what is kind of turned into campaign setting month with Torg and guest Ed Stark. But before we get started, this is your last call to enter our Fallout 3 van Buring contest. Three lucky listeners will win an exclusive playtest material of the pen and paper game used to test the rules for the unfinished version of Fallout 3, codename Van Buren, courtesy of the designer Chris Avalon. To enter, email contest at gamerstavern.org with the subject line Nuka Break. In the body, include your best Fallout-themed haiku, and your shipping address. You have until midnight central time on Sunday, May 31st, so get your entries in now. With that said, grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Are you looking for a new game to play? DriveThruRPG is the internet's largest source of role-playing games. Enjoy our game table episodes with Shadowrun, Dungeons and Dragons, or Mutants and Masterminds, and you want to join in? Or is World of Darkness, Battletech, or Fate more your thing? Or maybe you just want to check out games from our guests like The Cursed and Shintar, the Savage World settings. Just go to gamerstavern.org slash RPG and you can have a new game to play in minutes. And they also have the largest selection of free games, source books, and starter sets anywhere in the world. Go to gamerstavern.org slash RPG and support the show with every purchase. The Gamers Tavern Podcast is sponsored by Pinnacle Entertainment Group's Savage Worlds game, featuring Deadlands, 50 Fathoms, East Texas University, Weird Wars, and dozens of fantastic licensees. Savage Worlds is fast, furious, and fun. Welcome to the Gamers Tavern Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And tonight we have with us a special guest, Ed Stark. Hi, I'm Ed Stark. Ed, thanks so much for joining us on the show tonight. Hey, I'm glad to be on. We're going to be talking about a really cool setting called Torg, which is something that uh, Ed has had a lot to do with. But I, I want to tell the listeners actually a little bit because Ed is a really special guy to me personally because – Without Ed Stark, and I like to say this, without Ed Stark, I don't think I would be anywhere near as as far in my career uh, as a writer, as a game designer, uh, than without him. Because he was kind of the guy who sat me down 15 years ago, uh, 14 years ago. It was Winter Fantasy 2001. I still actually have the uh, the convention flyer, Ed. <laughs> mm, I, re- I remember that. I think you're giving me a little too much credit, but... Go on. Yeah, he said. He said, uh, you know, if you want to do it, just do it. I think you have, you know, I think you have what it takes. Go ahead and do it. Uh, And it was that push that I needed to get get started in the industry. And we've kind of actually, it's weird. We kind of run into each other. uh, Ed and I did uh, several times over the next few years, like at various conventions and whatnot. And then we actually started working together at uh, Vigil Games about three years ago. Oh, more like four, I think. Yeah, but yes, yeah, we did. I, I remember uh, because you called me about advice about getting into the computer game industry, and I said, "Well, we, just, <laughs> we desperately need somebody like you." 
Yeah, it was a serendipity. Uh, so I, I had an awesome chance to uh, to work with Ed. And while we were working together was the first time I played Torque. And I played it. It was a milestone for two things. It was a milestone because Ed was the GM. And it was also the first RPG I ever played with my father. Yeah, I remember. He he seemed to have a really good time, too. Oh, man, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. All right, well, let's um, let's dive right in because the, what we do here on the Tavern is when we bring on a guest, we like to ask them to tell the listeners a little bit about who they are and where people might know them from in the context of a gaming character sheet. Well, since we're talking about Torg, I, I, can, th- I can think about it in... And that thing, I, I don't know if I want to describe my stats. I like to think I have a <laughs> slightly better than average intelligence and maybe a little bit of strength. My dexterity is not what it used to be, though. <laughs> uh, but uh, and I got a got a kind of a odd mix of skills, you know, everything from uh, you know scholarship English to uh, uh, creative writing to a little bit of game design and uh, an odd bit of fencing that's been slowly degrading over the years. If you don't use it, you lose it, as it were. So, but my jump is nowhere near what it used to be. <laughs> now, people might know you in the gaming industry uh, from d and 3.0, isn't that right? Well, yes. I actually started with TSR back when you know TSR was its own company in Wisconsin, and I was a lead designer in the Birthright Group. I know you know a lot about Birthright. And, uh, so I was about to when, say, if our listeners may recognize the name, it's come up <laughs> many times on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I got to, I had the privilege of getting to design for that uh, setting for about two and a half years. And then when Wizards of the Coast acquired TSR, I moved out to Seattle with most of the company. And that was when we really started working on third edition in earnest. And, I got to be the creative director for D&D 3rd Edition and 3.5, which uh, means that I got to work with the design team and basically kind of be a facilitator, you know, make sure that the lead designer, Jonathan Tweet, and, you know, Monty Cook and Rich Baker and Skip Williams and all the guys who worked on designing actual 3rd Edition had what they needed to get everything going and worked with the rest of the group to transition from 2nd Edition to 3rd. So, you know, that was my first... Uh, really big uh, team leading experience and it was you know kind of like jumping into the the middle of the frying pan as it were uh, but it was but it was a lot of fun you know we did third edition then we got to do 3.5 and I even worked a little bit on fourth edition before I left for the computer game industry speaking of the computer game industry uh, you had a big release come out recently yes uh, I am a senior designer at uh, Zenimax online and we just published, uh, well, just published about you know six months ago, Elder Scrolls Online, uh, an MMO Ooh. set in the Elder Scrolls universe. And you know we're still working on uh, updating and releasing more material for that. And that is totally badass. All right, thank you, Ed. That's a great character sheet. Uh, we've had a lot You're of welcome. we've had a lot of great guests on this show with some uh, impressive pedigrees. We've had guys. <laughs> Like uh, you know, Scott Kurtz, John Kavalik, of very recently, Rich Baker, um, Bruce uh, Cordell, and of course yourself. Now, um, so I feel like the show is actually getting kind of a little <laughs> bit of a, a polish by all these really great game designers coming through and, and joining us. So let's go jump into the second section where uh, we ask what you have been playing lately. And I'm going to go ahead and just start with Ed. What have you been playing lately? Well. 
Uh, oddly enough, I've been playing a lot of board games. I mean, every day I go in and I spend anywhere between 9 and 12 hours working on, on Elder Scrolls stuff. So one of the things that I do a lot is play a lot of, of board games, you know, Eurocentric type stuff or, you know, uh, things like, you know, occasionally, you know, just fun, weird stuff like Cards Against Humanity or, you know, games like, you know, Acquire and everything. And, and then once every year I run a thing at out of my house with my wife Jill called JatCon and that's uh, that's just a little home convention where we get about 40 people into our townhouse and we divide it up like a convention center and we, we play games and I get to play miniatures games and role playing games and everything so like you know I every year I get to play a ton of stuff in my own house and then we play whatever is around like recently we went through a big Circus Maximus uh, spree awesome and, that's like you know, a chariot racing course, game, isn't it? It's uh, it's chariot racing, uh, and and anybody who t- tells you it's a racing game has been corrupted by the idea of winning. Really, it's racing around in chariots and trying to slaughter other people <laughs> while hitting them with whips and running over, running them over with with spiked chariots. Nice. But yeah, technically you are trying to cross the finish line first, but you know who really wants to do that? <clears throat> but yeah, you know, so we we play a lot of games. Uh, both at work and at home. Uh, I'm also playing, you know, some D and D. I'm actually going to be getting into a new fifth edition campaign. We we play tested fifth edition uh, back before it came out, but I hadn't had a chance to really play it in depth. Uh, so I'm going to get a chance to play that later on, uh, probably beginning of beginning of next year, I expect. Yeah. Oh, and I did just run a a game sort of based on Torg. It used a similar card mechanic and and die mechanic, but it was sort of a home homegrown thing that I'm working on. That's awesome. Yeah, so lots of stuff. <laughs> that is that is great. Uh, uh, Daryl, what have you been playing lately? Uh, I actually got to play. Uh, I talked last week a little bit about my friend was setting up to run an urban-based Thieves Guild kind of uh, Pathfinder game. And I got to play the first adventure of that. And surprisingly enough, it was actually a dungeon crawl uh, for the first adventure. <laughs> we were sent to retrieve the MacGuffin from the wizard shack, who the wizard's long gone and no one knows where he is. And we ended up going into his sub-basement. And it was every single creepy, crawly thing you can think of that's in Pathfinder. We ran into every centipede, every millipede, every snake, every ooze, every fungus. And dear God, shriekers suck in Pathfinder. Suck in Pathfinder. Oh, man. <laughs> and, to make yeah. it, and to make it worse, I was waiting until second level to take as a thieves, uh, uh, sorry, the, the rogue talent, my weapon finesse. So I'm at, I, and I dumped strength. So I'm at minus one on every single one of my attacks on everything in this dungeon crawl because I built my character for bluff. At the end of the adventure, I finally get to make a bluff check. Let me guess. You rolled a one. Bingo. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I hate it when that happens. I was going to say it's hard to bluff a shrieker. but. <laughs> Be very, very quiet. No, what it was was what it was was the thing we were sent to retrieve was our our patron is a dwarf tavern. She keeps the tavern. She used to be part of the old thieves guild before it collapsed, and she wanted this tin of a salve that she wouldn't tell us what it was. And when she got back, she like took a big scoopful of it and put it into her beard. And she said, so what do you think? And so the bluff check was to do that thing that every single guy on the planet knows where it's like, oh, yeah, it looks awesome when you have no mm-hmm. idea what the hell they're talking about if they get back from the salon. Nice. <laughs> and I rolled nice. my one. <laughs> wow. wow. Oh, I can I can hear your voice. Oh, it looks 
Awesome. <laughs> All right. So Pathfinder, anything else, Daryl, or is that pretty much uh, uh, the sum total? That's pretty much it. Uh, let's see. As for me, I've been playing, let's see, I've been playing Sentinels in the Multiverse, which is just this beautiful card game. Sure, yeah. Oh, you played it, Ed? Uh, I have not, but there are guys at work who've been playing it, and I got to uh, watch a couple of sessions recently. Oh, my God, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got it on my iPad now, and I've been playing it on my iPad. It's oh, it's crazy. on iPad? I didn't know that. Yeah, the base set is on iPad, and you can unlock some of the advanced characters. Oh, and stuff. it's great. Okay. I'll have to try that. Um, in terms of board games, um, Spartacus. I bought Spartacus after playing it once with Shane Hensley. My mm-hmm. God, that is a great game. Crap, i got to find uh, another Christmas present for you now. I, well, you know what you could get me is the expansion because there's, it, it takes it from four players to six. There you go. Let's see. Uh, in addition to that, I have been running a D&D 5th edition game of Birthright. Ah, uh, big surprise there. <laughs> in fact, it is set in the uh, the Cities of the Sun. It is set in the Kanasi realm. Mm. Um, the Zangi Valley is where we're at. And I have a group of seven players, uh, which is three couples and another, another uh, a good friend of mine. So I have... Uh, Almost an even mix of men and women, which is kind of unusual for me. And it's uh, really exciting, uh, really fun. Everybody's having a great time. And one of my friends, um, this is he, he brought his wife, Kate, to the game. And she had never played any role-playing games ever before. And, man, I tell you, when you're talking about, like, that perfect new player experience, this is it. She jumped in with both feet, bought her own dice. She's now playing games in her hometown, which is about a, a, an hour and a half away from me, Right. And then coming and complaining to us about how they're not doing it right, <laughs> which <laughs> is awesome. Great. Oh, she's amazing. She's and she's listened to every episode of the podcast. So hi, Kate. Uh, thanks for being awesome. Thanks and, for listening. So that's what I've been up to. Um, and uh, yeah, I could, of course, uh, talk about the uh, Star Trek online stuff, but I will probably save that for another day. <laughs> that's great that you're doing Cities of the Sun. I, I think um, that was the first uh, product I ever touched in the Birthright line in a lot of ways. So I got brought on when that was being uh, being edited, and so I kind of helped out a little bit. You know, Sue Cook was the the editor on the project, and I just did like a little bit of proofreading. But that was, in a way, sort of a crash course in Birthright <laughs> for me, and it was it was really cool. I, I think it's one of the more interesting realms in a lot of ways. Well, it's uh, we find it very interesting mostly because it's the one that's most in danger. Like mm. all the other regions, uh, with the possible exception of Vosgard, you know, are kind of doing their own thing, and they're going to be, you know, you get the feeling they're they're going to be okay if nothing, you know, really changes. But if nothing changes in the Cities of the Sun, they are kind of doomed. So, yeah. That's why I like it. But let's, you know, let's leave Birthright behind, much as I love it. Because <laughs> we need to talk about a, a different <clears throat> campaign setting. And we have a thing called Tavern Tales. Now, Tavern Tales is usually where we ask, uh, we usually ask our guests about a memorable die roll. But what I'm going to ask you for specifically is can you give us a memorable die roll from a tour game? Uh, does it have to be one that I made? No, not at all. Okay. So, and can I, would it be okay if I gave you two? Cause yeah, sure. Very, okay. All right. <laughs> a little, little strange because, uh, uh, so the first one happened during a play test. Uh, do you remember an adventure called High Lord of Earth? I've heard of it. I don't think I've read it. Okay. So High Lord of Earth, uh, the, the whole idea behind Torg is that, or the fictional idea is that all these different realities are invading Earth. And uh, they bring with them their own axioms, their own natural laws. So if you, uh, if you go to 
say, Australia, you're going to be in the horror realm of a Rorsch. And things just work differently there. You don't have, for example, high levels of technology, but you do maybe have higher levels of spiritualism. You know, things like that. Different, different areas have, have different things. Well, the High Lord of Earth was, uh, theoretically, somebody was trying to make an axiom of actually Earth with, with our technology, with our beliefs and everything. This was not a good person. This was not a good guy who was doing this. And so he was trying to take over Earth and sort of rebuild it in his image. And that was kind of scary. So we're playtesting this adventure. And we kept insisting to the the editor that, you know, the character who was playing or the NPC design for the High Lord was he was probably not as impressive as as you wanted him to be. But this is a skill-based system, so you have to eyeball things a lot. And... We're going through the adventure, and it's funny because uh, you brought up the idea of bluffing someone, uh, Daryl, and we get to the end of the adventure, and we're fighting on top of this giant Aztec-style pyramid. And As you do. Yes, as you do. <laughs> and, you know, Lightning flashing all over the place, and all of us are doing all kinds of crazy things. We're all from different realms. And uh, one of the players was the sales manager at West End, uh, a guy named Fitzroy Bonterre, and he played a Canadian... Mountie. He was, a, he, was a, <laughs> he was an Earth hero. Uh, and he had a lot of good combat skills, but his best thing was actually charisma. He was a very charismatic guy, and he had intimidation. And so he makes a roll. And if you remember how Torg works, if you roll a 10 or a 20, you get to roll again and add. Well, he rolls a 20. And then he rolls a 10. Nice. And then he, then he rolls like a really high roll. And then he spends a card that gives him another roll and he just adds onto it. And, and basically what he's trying to do is he's in trying to intimidate the high lord of earth, you know, and generally when you intimidate someone in the combat system of Torg, you get an advantage in the next round, you know, they lose an action or something. But he rolled so spectacularly that really the only thing the game master could do was have the guy kind of collapse into a heap crying. <laughs> <laughs> he just just so exceeded the thing. And so the entire adventure comes to a, conclu- a somewhat adds unsatisfactory conclusion, although humorous, with the high lord potential high lord of earth lying on top of the ziggurat calling out for his mommy. <laughs> and so that was pretty good. And, and it was it was pertinent because it also told us, hey, we gotta bump this guy's stats up or this is gonna be ridiculous. So uh, so that was that was the first one. The second one was at the end of an adventure that I ran called Operation Hard Cell. And it was about uh the uh, uh the the Nippon Tech, which was kind of like a, a Blade Runner-esque society that had taken over Japan and was actually trying to mask their presence because they weren't that much different from uh, uh, Earth now, technologically speaking. They were a little bit more advanced. They were ultra-business and everything. It's just just this really nasty uh, uh, corporate espionage place. And, and they were trying to take over a chunk of, of Western United States, uh, imposing their reality on, on it. And, uh, and one of the things they had were these uh, giant, well, giant, you know, eight, 12 feet tall, uh, robotic samurai that they used as, uh, as bodyguards and things for their, their big executives. Well, the, the guys who were running, playing in the game had just fought their way through this nasty underground complex and they were just setting off the things that were going to, you know, destroy the complex and foil the, the, uh, Nippon tech 
plot, and and one of these giant samurai comes running after them, waving a flaming sword, and and their their only escape is to go is to try and climb up this missile silo, and everybody is down to their last possibility. Everybody is wounded. Everybody is fatigued. They're all just dying to get out of there. And one guy gets up there and he's got to like pull everybody else up and they're, they're using the drama deck to, to use, solve a complex problem, getting everybody out. And, and you know, there's no chance everybody's going to get out until one guy rolls a 20. Nice. And another 20 and another 20. And everybody's spending their cards <laughs> to help them. They pulled the party out just as the silo explodes, you know, destroying the entire complex. And basically they got the exact number they needed to roll to get everybody out alive. No one had any possibilities left. No one had any cards left. Everybody was either, you know, critically wounded or, or something like that. And they just all lay there gasping. And you can look around the table and the entire, the entire table is essentially laying there gasping. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I knew that that was a, that was a good adventure because just, you know, yeah. you want the players to succeed, but if at all possible, you want to, them to succeed by the skin of their teeth. And that's exactly what they did. Well, one of the reasons why I love Tor, and it's the same reason why I really love uh, Savage Worlds as well, is there's a possibility for just outrageous results, you know, because you can roll yeah. in, you can roll in uh, an, an ad if you uh, max out your dice in Savage Worlds. And in Tor, you can roll an ad if you get a 10 or a 20. And there's things you can do in both systems to even add further results to that so that some truly epic moments like what you just described, are possible. And that's just one of the things I love about that. That's one thing I kind of miss. I've been playing a lot of uh, D20 stuff recently, either Pathfinder or 5th Edition D&D. And I really miss exploding dice, man. I like that that <laughs> idea of just, okay, your target number is a 6. What do you roll? Okay, roll again. Okay, roll again. Okay, roll again. I got a 57. <laughs> and the thing is, I mean, I like the exploding die mechanics. We put one in second edition Star Wars for that very reason. Uh, and, and I tend to, that's one of the things I tend to add to games, even when I'm playing D20, you know, I use home rules for it. But actually the other part of it that I like even more is the player control. The, the, uh, in, in Torg, you've got cards and you've got possibilities that you can spend. Other games have similar sort of aspects. I like it because, you know, you were just talking about the bluff check that went horribly wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. You you want to have things go horribly wrong occasionally. That makes for a good story. But you also want things to be able to go right sometimes. And and, and sometimes the die just doesn't cooperate. <laughs> and, and it ends up, <coughs> while sometimes it can end up being a really cool, funny story like the bluff thing, sometimes it can just be frustrating. You're like, you made all these great plans and it just doesn't make any sense to you that things fail. So if you save up your resources and you, and you plan and you, mm -hmm. and you conspire and, and then you spend all these resources at once, it can be good. And, and Torg really facilitates that because not only does it have these additional things, but it has that whole build-up mechanic. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but the whole drama deck is organized around the idea that during a standard encounter, a standard scene, as they called it, uh, the players have an advantage. They're going to tend to go first. They're going to tend to get the better cards. They're going to tend to have other advantages over the, the stormtrooper-level NPCs, over the grunts and the minions. But then when you get into the big boss encounter, 
everything reverses. The, the bad guys all have the advantage. The cards always come up for them. So players have to use that buildup. They have to use those early encounters to set themselves up for success later. And that's how you, you have something like I described at the end of Operation Hard Cell, where the players, if they hadn't saved those resources, if they didn't Right. You know, build up. They would have. They would have either failed or they would have. You know, died heroically saving, saving the area because it's uh, it's got to be dramatic. And and the GM can throw so much more at you when he knows, hey, these guys have things that are going to be able to deal with it. I'm going to you know start draining their resources. You know, in you know in in D and D, which is a a game system I love. If the bad guys roll too many criticals, you're just dead. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's always raised dead or resurrection, but true. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, let's talk about the drama deck a little later because I, I want to get back to that. But first, I think for the listeners, I think what we should probably establish is just kind of the general overall idea of what is Torg. The other role playing game. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it stands for, right? Uh, well, unofficially, yeah, that, that was, that was the code name for it. And that's, it sort of demonstrates what happens when you stick with a code name for too long. But, <laughs> Torg, Torg is interesting. It is, uh, it's something I, th- I like to think of as a bridge between the sort of mechanically inclined games of the eighties and the, uh, uh, cinematic or theatrical games of the nineties. You know, in a little way, it kind of, tries to straddle both and has has a little bit of problems in in both categories but it also has a lot of advantages it it was meant to be a pulp action you know exciting drama driven i mean the name of the card deck is the drama deck right uh game it, it's supposed to be a high powered you know high high excitement game that even though it's multi genre even if you look at all the genres, they are drawing from the old pulp action. I mean, the Nile Empire is 1920s, 1930s shadow, green hornet sort of adventure. The, uh, the living land is, well, it's this, it's the savage land. It's the savage world, you know, the dinosaurs and stuff roaming the earth. Um, <clears throat> Arorsh, while it's a horror realm, it's not, <clears throat> it's not the despair necessarily of Call of Cthulhu. It's more, the battling against, you know, the horrible evils, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula sort it's, of thing. Uh, I like to think of Horosh as kind of the hammer horror film. Uh, yes. Hey, that's a great, that's a great analogy. Yes. Uh, but, but anyway, that, that's the thing. It's, it's pulp action. It's, it's, it's high adventure. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of games, like you mentioned Savage Worlds, you know, drew on some of that, that nature. So yeah, yeah, Torque's supposed to be a high agency, High player agency, high adventure, high drama game. It's definitely not something you want to take too seriously. I mean, we ran Torg campaigns and everything, but it's really one of those things that I think actually runs best as, you know, really short mini campaigns. It's almost like the, the, the mirror edge of, of Call of Cthulhu. I mean, most people don't run the same Call of Cthulhu characters over and over and over again, mostly because they tend to go insane and die. <laughs> uh, Torg, you probably don't want to run the same characters over and over and over because they'll just essentially become gods. And well, you, you made an interesting note there about its kind of historical significance. Just to be clear for the listeners, Tor came out in 1990, which is almost 25 years ago at this point. Yes. And the 90, right at the beginning of the 90s, you did see a, uh, a movement in role-playing games 
away from heavy mechanics and towards storytelling, towards uh, you know, towards a more narrative experience. Yeah, and often want, at the expense of game mechanics. <laughs> well, well, possibly, but I want I don't to say, mean that in a bad way. Just you know, putting your emphasis where sure. where you want it. Yeah. Now I want to say that Torg's cinematic, particular, it had it had a very particular. Uh, cinematic emphasis. It was trying to emulate the feel of a, of a, of a film in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, and I want to say a lot of that was actually kind of inspired by uh, Greg Kostikian's work on the Star Wars game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you look at West End's uh, material, a lot of their stuff followed a, uh, you know, a sort of a semi-linear uh, growth. I mean, there were definitely offshoots of things like Paranoia was a very different game. Right. Uh, it still had sort of a, I, I, I hesitate to call it cinematic feel, almost more like comic bookish feel. <laughs> but, you know, you, you look at not only Star Wars, but the precursor to Star Wars, Ghostbusters. Right. Which, which is, has influenced, you know, 80 billion games you can trace back to Ghostbusters. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the, and Star Wars had, in a lot of ways, this similar sort of, uh, I, I don't necessarily want to call them drawbacks, but similar sort of limitations. You, you know, I, I have participated in long running Star Wars games. But if you look at the way Star Wars was designed, you know, they, they actually have, uh, you know, difficulty numbers. It's a skill, another skill based system where, you know, it, you know, it's using quotes from the movies, you right. know, say, saying things like never tell me the odds. And at a certain point when your character has skilled up enough, the never tell me the odds is the median or low level of the role. <laughs> That's true. You know, you're, you, in order to make this work, you're fighting stormtroopers who would give Darth Vader a run for his money, you know, and and that's fine. You know, there's right. there's nothing wrong with that, but it's hard to design house adventures for that. You you can design it for your own campaign, but if you try and publish an adventure that has stormtroopers with you know ten d six you know laser ability, then people right. are going to look at you funny. Now, toward back in 1990, this was a, a pretty ambitious launch. It was a, a very full boxed set, mm-hmm. and it had a, a pretty solid. I, I want to say it had a, a very strong support system, you know, built into right from the start. It, it kind of eclipsed a lot of the other uh, West End games that were not Star Wars at the time. For example, Shatter Zone. Well, I mean, Shatter Zone was evolved from Torg. I mean, okay. 1990 was Torg, and then the idea with Shatter Zone was we had our Star Wars cinematic game, which, of course, had come out before either of them. Uh, but the owner of the company, Scott Palter, really wanted to have a uh, more hard science fiction-based game, You know, something that felt a little bit more like the military science fiction that he was a big fan of, You know, more like uh, things that you know, came out later, like, you know, David Weber's Honor Harrington books and, you know, things like that. And, and, uh, you know, the Verstigian books, you know, stuff like that. So I designed, uh, Shatter Zone using Torg as a basis for the system. I mean, the, the system is very similar. We, uh-huh. we did a couple of things differently, one of which I kind of regret. We, one of the things we, we went for is Torg, of course, has the flat die mechanic, a D20. Which has a, you know, equal chance of rolling any number. Uh, in Shatter Zone, we went to a 2d10 system, which of course gives you a bell curve, which gives you a more normalized odds. You know, you were, you had a greater chance of rolling something in the middle of that curve, hence less heroic rolls. Okay. Uh, but I, I think that was a mistake. To be well, honest. I, I apologize for being confused there. I, I thought no, that's I, okay. I was wrong about that. <laughs> 
Everybody, I was wrong about that. Um, no, it's it's oh okay. Oh my god, it's, Ross it's admitted 20, he's wrong. It's been <laughs> it's been twenty years since since that came out. But I mean, Torg Torg was already you know start when I started with the company, the Torg box set had come out, and I got to work on a lot of the later supplements, and then I designed Shatter Zone, and then did essentially another thing when we designed Masterbook, which was going to be essentially the West End house system, and we published a whole mess of games under the Masterbook you know, logo. And again, that was still just an evolution of Torg. It was never meant to be anything more than, hey, let's see what we like about Torg and see what can make a little bit better. Well, you know, part of the reason why I mentioned that it was kind of an ambitious <clears throat> launch, um, what, what I was really kind of getting at with the idea that it was ambitious is because Torg was actually up against another huge release by a different company, but on a very, very similar setting. And of course, we're talking about rifts from Palladium books. Yep. So you had Rifts coming out and Torg same year. Mm -hmm. One was a box set, which was Torg. It was complete game. And then the other was really just kind of, it was a, it was more of a, a, a launch, a kickstart launch, if you will, for a, a, a long line of source books, which is Rifts. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So it's just, it's curious. You know, I, I mean, I just want to point out to the listeners, like, you know, back in the nineties, this was a big deal. This was, this was like, uh, you know, when you have two movies show up at the same time, like when you had, uh, what do you call it, Tombstone going up against uh, Wyatt Earp, and they're both the same, you know, both films about the same thing, oh, but they're by different people. 80, yeah. you know, 84, there, Back to the Future and Ghostbusters, and yeah. uh, was it Raiders right, of the Lost? No, it wasn't, uh, it was um, Tipple of Doom all in the same summer? Something like so that, yeah. So there's an even better example, really, and that's, Big Trouble in Little China and The Golden Child. Oh, yeah. There and you go. <laughs> the reason I mentioned those is if you ever read the history, both were being planned separately. And it was just weird because both were very different from anything that was coming out at the time. But then when the studio behind Big Trouble in Little China found out that Golden Child was being planned and had Eddie Murphy and all this other stuff going, they were like, they got nervous and they said, Oh, geez, we got to get our thing out a little quicker and we got to see what we can do to, to make it, you know, you know, catch on. And in a way, a lot of ways that was sort of Torg because they found out that Rifts was coming out, both parallel development. Nobody was going after anybody else's stuff. That was not the point, but, but Torg as a result, we got maybe rushed out a little bit. You know, it, it, if you talk to uh, Greg Gordon and Bill Slavisek, the, you know, the two key designers on, on Torg, they were under a lot of pressure to get that box set out when they did and might have been, you know, nice for them and for the system if they'd had just a little bit more time to make it uh, more accessible. I, I mean, Torg was a fabulous game, still is a fabulous game. But one of the things that uh, I know they always said was, boy, I, I, I wish that people would understand the rules a little bit better from reading it. As, as you probably yeah. have experienced, when you sit down and play Torg, it's a really fun game and you're like, Oh my God, I really enjoy this. I can, I could run this game right now. And, and you can. When you sit down and just crack open the books and try and teach it to yourself, it can be a little intimidating because it's got a lot of different concepts in there. You know, I got to admit, um, I played almost every game that came out between 1985 and 1995, probably. And, uh, of all of those games, the one I just could not figure a way out to, to run, uh, successfully was Torque. I owned the box set initially and I read it. And I read it again, and I read it again, and I was just like, I don't get it, right? It was yeah, just one of those things. 
you're holding it up to the light and going, am I missing something? <laughs> now, I'm so, coming in on this as kind of the outsider. Torg was not on my radar at this point in time. I was just starting to get into gaming when Torg was hitting its peak. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious. Might it have been it, – it was one of the last great boxed set systems because by this point in time, a lot of the companies had moved away from box sets for the core rules for their games. Could that have possibly been a factor? Well, I certainly think it might have been. I mean, because even before that, I mean, you had games like Champions that were coming out in big hardcovers, you know, and that, that was becoming more and more the case because, well, quite frankly, it was just cheaper. And also, once you get uh, into the White Wolf era, it was pretty much that was everybody was doing in that. And systems were being designed to accommodate that. Torg, it was using a card system. You couldn't say, here, buy this book and not be able to play the game because they're cards. Although, I'll tell you, the Japanese release of Torg was freaking awesome. If you ever get a chance to see one of those, um, they did it, they redid all the art into, like, manga style. Oh, yeah. Which, I mean, that's not necessarily the awesome part, although it was really cool. They did it, <laughs> they did it in a slipcase, and they took the cards, and they turned them into perforated uh, sheets that were just essentially a third book. Oh, wow. It was in the slipcase, and it's, it's just amazing. I used to have one of those. I, I don't know what happened to it. Uh, I'm going to eBay it, right now. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was incredible. It's definitely worth looking at. But, yeah, I, I think, Daryl, I think you're right. The, the whole box set thing, that was another thing that was a little intimidating because people couldn't just pick it up and read through it. The only other company at the time that was really focusing on box sets was TSR, and they were basically doing campaign settings that way they were that was about the time of that was about the time of ravenloft and dark sun and yeah and so like you knew if you were a DD fan you could look at ravenloft and dark sun and all that and go well this is another variation on DD. you know if i if i'm interested in in gothic horror if i'm interested in you know sort of wasteland adventure then i'm probably gonna be fine because i already know how to play DD. you know Again, assuming you're a D&D fan. So it wasn't as big of a risk. If you looked at Torg on the, on the setting, you saw this cool cover with a, with a priest and a cyberpunk looking off into the, <laughs> in, into the, into the dark mist, the glowing eyes. And then you read the back of, and you learned about reality stuff, but you really didn't know what's the system like? What, what is the setting? I, I mean, I'm getting what's on the box set, but I'm going to now have to drop $30, which at the time, fairly expensive. Uh, for this hefty box, and I don't know if I'm gonna like it or not. Still, it did it did do very well when it was out. I mean, it uh, when it came out, Torg supplements were outselling the Star Wars supplements for West End by a considerable margin. Wow! It was really not until the Timothy Zahn novels hit and Star Wars really ticked up again that uh, that Star Wars started outselling Torg at the company. So I worked at Fantasy Flight Games with this guy named Brian Schomburg. Now, Brian is a very, very talented graphic designer and artist and art director. <laughs> and he is probably the greatest living fan of Torg that's ever been. <laughs> um, and it was because of Brian that I actually kind of went back and took another look at Torg later on. And uh, this is, of course, uh, before I started working directly with Ed. So it was it was kind of interesting to come back to Ed when we were working together and say, hey, you know, tell me more about Torg because Brian Schomburg just would not stop talking about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the, the thing you mentioned is the uh, we talked about the the kind of lack of accessibility in the rules, but there was a way around this that you told me about uh, that you kind of wished you could have done for everybody. And what was that called? 
It was called Greg in a Box. <laughs> and, and I'm going to tell you about Wait, Greg what? in a Box if you'll let me tell you the story of how I met Brian Schomburg. But I'll sure. tell you that after the Greg in the Box story. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so <clears throat> we uh, when Torg first came out, uh, actually the year before Torg came out, it was announced uh, at Gen Con that, that uh, we're going to come out with, with this game and it's going to be awesome. And we've got these, this special giveaway here. And it, and it was a, basically a business card with a little piece of sort of weird lava shaped plastic, uh, that was, uh, red and, uh, blue mottled colors. And, uh, it, it was the same color uh, combination as we ended up doing for the Torg die. If you've ever seen one of those. Oh yeah. But, we said, bring this back to our booth next year at Gen Con, and you'll get something special. And they gave those out. And they gave out several hundred of those with the, with the hopes that some of them would make their way back, you know, and drive up interest. And they did. But right in the months leading up to, uh, to Gen Con, people kind of had forgotten about this. And then somebody said, hey, these things are going to come back to the booth. What are we going to do? <laughs> and somebody said, well, let's give everybody who comes back with this thing a discount on, on new Torg stuff. And like, well, that's not very exciting. I said, okay, well, we'll do that. And we got this really great idea. When Torg came out, like I said, it was kind of hard to learn out of the box. But Greg Gordon, the primary systems designer for the game, was a phenomenal game master. And Anyone who ever sat down with Greg and played one session of Torg not only enjoyed themselves, but knew how to play the game, knew how to run it. No mm -hmm. problem at all. So we said, man, if we could just ship Greg out with every box, this would be awesome. <laughs> so what we said is, Greg, how would you like to fly to somebody's house and run a game for them over a weekend? And Greg uh, was always up for some some fun, and he said, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> so what we did is whenever somebody came back with one of those cards at Gen Con, we said, okay, put your name and address and contact information on the back of this card and we'll put it into a raffle. And then at the end of the convention, we're going to draw one of these cards and we will pay to have Greg fly out to your house and run a game for you and your friends for a weekend. I think it was like a long weekend, like Labor Day weekend or something like that. And so we did that. And one of the things we always said to Greg is like, well, we really hope you don't get put in somebody's basement and like murdered or, or, <laughs> or, or kept like misery, you know, or something like that. And, uh, but no, Greg ran out, went out there and had a lot of fun and, and played and ran the game for the person who had a lot of fun and everything went terrific. And then many years later, when I was working at Wizards of the Coast, this guy came up to me, a guy named Warren, and he said, Hey, my son was the one who won that Greg in a Box contest. And he was like the head of security at Wizards. Wow. And so that was just kind of a weird, funny uh, continuation of the story. But yeah, it, it was it was great. Now, if we could have just done that with, you know, 20,000 more people, that, that would have been awesome. <laughs> I love that story because that is a great kind of solution to the uh, mm -hmm. the idea of the, the rule set um, thing. I, I got to say, like one of my issues with Torque, and I, I love it. You know, it's a great game. But one of my issues is I don't. I've never liked the idea of uh, your XP mechanic also being your in-game oh, economy. God, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, we, we. That was. I mean, that was the the main problem because. So, as a game designer, you know, math is my friend, 
And if you look at the at the um, the system for Torg, and we improved upon this a little bit with Shatter Zone and Masterbook because again, math was my friend, and I used math to my advantage a little bit. Mathematically, once you had picked up a point in a skill, it was better to save your possibilities to spend on die rolls than to cash them in and buy skills because one skill point did not matter that much. The The first skill point was important because that's when you got the roll it again bonus. You know, you couldn't uh, roll again on a 20, I believe it was, if it, uh, if you didn't have skill in it. So like if you didn't have fire combat and you shot a gun, uh, you couldn't get those exceptional rolls. But once you had one point, the second point really didn't matter all that much. So why would you spend possibilities on it? That would be crazy. And so, I mean, in, in later uh, versions like Shatter Zone and Masterbook, we've capped the number of possibilities you could keep from adventure to adventure, and we made skill buying a little bit more useful, and we never quite got where I wanted it to get. But, yeah, that that was... Uh, that, well, that was not something we want to do, but, but it also <laughs> pointed out the idea that Torg wasn't maybe the most campaignable system. You created a character, you'd run it for a few adventures, and then, you know, you'd create another character and do another group of adventures because there were so many different options. You know, it almost would seem like a shame if you only ever played one anyway. Well, I, I do want to say, like, there are people who disagree with me on the, you know, the whole thing. Uh, most famously, John Dunn, my very good friend and designer uh, who helped me out with uh, Accursed and many of my 40K games. Uh, John just loves the idea of possibilities as XP. So, you know, shout out to John. You know, uh, if you like it, that's awesome. Me personally, not, it's not my style. So there you go. But <laughs> it, it just reminds me of deck depletion games. And yeah. and deck depletion games are very popular. So you, you and I maybe are, are in the minority. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's get back really quick to the drama deck because mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most interesting parts of Torg mechanically is that you have this deck of cards and the deck – well, I mean, you can tell us how the deck works. Well, the, okay, the deck serves many purposes. That's it's it's actually one of the more versatile uh, game elements I I think I've ever seen. I mean, uh, even more so than dice in some ways. So the way the drama deck works is uh, you you've got this deck of cards at the beginning of a game session. Everybody gets dealt. I think it's four cards. There may be some some differences in this based on your character's background, but whatever. And in, in your, this makes a hand of cards that you have. On each card, there's a section that has essentially a bonus. And that's what you're paying attention to when you have a card in your hand. And the bonus might be something like adrenaline, which gives you a plus three to any physical skill check. Uh, or it might be something great like a hero point. Uh, you can spend this card and roll the die again. Uh, there, there are, a whole host of, of different bonuses that might be there. And that's when you've got it in your hand. And you can't just throw them those cards anyway. There's actually a, a gameplay mechanic that's sort of the ramp-up mechanic I was discussing earlier where you have the cards in your hand and you have to put them down in front of you one at a time as the combat or encounter it continues, and then you get to play them. So it, it actually lends itself to the cinematic. And that's only one aspect of it. Another aspect is when you get into a encounter... You flip over the top card of the deck and it tells you the initiative. There's, there's no rolling for initiative like in D&D. You're told that, oh, in this particular round, the heroes go first and the villains go second. Or the villains go first and the heroes go second. And then it might also have additional uh, 
effects like, oh, the heroes get a flurry. That means they get to take two actions this round. Or, or the villains are stymied. They don't get to do any rerolls if they roll tens or, you know, all kinds of different modifiers. And again, it drives the action. It sets the stage, you know. It uh, really, really reminds me of what Wizards of the Coast did in fourth edition D&D with their uh, cards that they added in as additional bonuses is kind of a lightweight version of that mechanic that came, you know, 15 years later. 20 years later. Yeah. But. I mean, the, the Wizards of the Coast, uh, the, the fourth edition set was really more an emulation of, uh, feats and skills and magical items and stuff translated into cards. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, Bill Slavisek, who was again, one of the designers on tour, he was the, uh, you know, head of RPG R and D at the time when fourth edition was being worked on. So, you know, don't be surprised that that card mechanic got in there. Uh, but, now, if, I, yeah. if I may, if I may, my, my favorite part of the drama deck is that when you flip a card over for initiative, there's actually a, a little keyword on there that has a, a, an incentive because if you do an action related to that keyword, you get to draw an additional card. Yeah. See, and, that's, and that's another, yeah, that's a whole other thing the drama deck does. And, and you're right. And, and Ross, what types of actions are almost never <laughs> those actions? Well, I, I, it's easier for me to say it this way. Nine times out of ten in a role-playing game encounter, your best option is – or sorry, not your best option, but your uh, your most commonly chosen option is to strike with your most powerful attack. Yep. And the drama deck incentivizes you to do things other than that, which is why I love it. Right. Right. Yeah. You almost always see things like intimidate skills or trick or ability maneuver. skills. Trick, maneuver. Right. Exactly. All kinds of, of things that don't necessarily mean shoot. Now, of course, players are free to do whatever they want, but you and I both know how players think. They see that pop up and they go, Oh, how can I get another card? Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and that is smart because like I said, in the standard scenes where you're going to defeat the opponents fairly easily, it's fairly simple to build up your card pool, to, to get more cards, to trade in bad cards for good cards. Uh, well, there aren't really any bad cards, but you know, lesser effective cards. And, you know, then you save up your drama cards, your hero cards, you know, all your really great stuff for the dramatic scene later on. And, and you do that exactly as you describe by, you know, card, what we used to call card diving. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like, all I need to do is shoot this last guy in the head. We can move on. Wait, wait, I'm going to trick him. <laughs> okay. You know. Well, but if I'm playing Rex Ranger, rocket, uh, Rex Steel Rocket Ranger, who's yeah. my, who's my favorite, uh, Torg character. And he's a rocket ranger, which means he basically wears a suit of power armor and can smack people with a metal fist for, you know, pretty good damage. Um, if I'm fighting agents in the Nile Empire and the card comes up with maneuver, it's actually cooler for me to go, okay, maybe I won't, you know, just, you know, beat a bad guy down. What I'll do is I'll grab the, uh, the crate of guns that they're trying to smuggle and, you know, fly off with that and put it, put it somewhere where they can't reach it. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll use a maneuver thing here and it'll be something cool and cinematic and not just I smack another bad guy. Let me roll down. Exactly. Damage, and which and is awesome. I think it's, and it's a great role playing facilitator too, because as you just did, the player has to describe that action. He has to convince the GM that he's not just card diving. He's doing something that's going to facilitate the adventure because GM can always overrule something and say, no, that's silly. It doesn't, doesn't get you a card. Don't, right. don't do that. Or, or sorry, you did that, but it doesn't get you a card. I, I think that that's one of the best parts about the game because it is a mechanic that rewards role playing 
by driving, you know, more role playing. It, it it may it's kind of like a almost like a self fulfilling prophecy or a, or sort of a right. circular mechanic that that makes things get better the more you do it. You know, people really get into playing their characters beyond just you know what sort of gun do I have? Um, Absolutely. But the drama deck is not done. The okay. drama deck does even more. There's another line that that a lot of people don't really understand very well because this was very hard to explain but it's a complex skill check now how often in in movies and tv shows action adventure things do we see bits where a character is under some sort of pressure to accomplish an action like for example you're you're on the top of a train and you've got to get to the to the <laughs> controls and you've got to stop the train before it goes off the edge of the cliff and all this other stuff well Unfortunately, in most role-playing games, that becomes a simple series of skill checks. And the player usually knows whether he's going to be able to make it or not. And he's like, well, I, you know, I got to make my climb check. I got to make my jump check and I've got to make my, you know, engineering check and bammo, I've saved the train. And he knows what his odds are and everything's like that. Well, the dramatic skill check line on the, on the drama deck actually sets it up so that these opportunities may not always present themselves, kind of like in a movie where, oh, the player is trying to move along the top of the train. Well, he flips over the card, and and in order to succeed, he's got to, that that line has to come up with, say, an A. You know, that there's A, numbers A through D on there, or letters, sorry, letters A through D, not numbers, but <laughs> it's late at night, um, <laughs> at least where I am. And this uh, reminds me of like a Indiana Jones movie when he's trying it, to do something and usually a bad guy gets in the way or something yes. happens. Complications. Right, complications. That's what they're called, you know. So I flip over the deck and oh, the, the card says BC. Well, that means I can't progress. What happened? Oh my God, the train tunnel is, is coming <laughs> up. I've got to, I've got to fall to the ground and I've got to try not to get hit. So, okay, make a dex check. All right. I've flattened myself out. I'm okay. But now one card has gone. You know, I may, I only have a certain number of cards, you know, that the GM has told me there's a time limit. You know, if you don't do this within 10 cards, you're going to fail, you know, so there's this drama. You don't know what you're going to be able to do every round. And, and that's, so that's another thing that the skill, uh, or sorry, that the uh, drama deck does is, is these complex skill checks. It, it helps drive the, the, uh, action and the drama and, you know, give some sort of uncertainty to these things. And it, you know, it has other things too. There's, there's all kinds of, uh, other mechanics. I, I don't want, it's hard to describe it, you know, just through audio. It's better to sort of lay it out, but <laughs> I encourage people to, to at least take a look at the drama deck. I'm sure that you can go online and, and download uh, versions of this and see all the stuff because to be honest, you could take the drama deck and with a little bit of modification, throw it into almost any game out there right now. Even if you weren't using Torque, it's you true. could figure out a way to do it. Finding the correct contact lenses and the perfect frames for the fashionably nerdtastic can be a hassle in the big box stores. So that's why I use AC Lens. From the most fashionable frames and hard-to-find prescription contact lenses to the perfect contacts for your next cosplay, AC Lens has all the bases covered at your fingertips without the hassle of leaving the game table. Just go to gamerstavern.org slash AC Lens, L-E-N-S. They have amazing offers, including up to $300 in savings for a year's supply of contact lenses and with a 100% satisfaction guarantee, what's not to like? There's even a special deal for Gamers Tavern listeners, $5 off any contact lens order of $50 or more. They have everything you need to keep your eyes healthy and happy. So check out GamersTavern.org slash Lens today for all your eye care needs. 
And we're back with Ed Stark talking about the Torg setting. Hi. Hi, Ed. We spent the last bit of the show really getting into like the mechanics of what makes Torg distinctive. But as a setting, I was wondering if you could kind of give us the overall conceit or the overall like elevator pitch of the Torg setting. Okay, sure. The, well, the key to the Torg setting is actually lies in the name itself, not just Torg, but it's Torg role-playing the Possibility Wars. Right. Uh, the Possibility Wars have to do with all the myriad possibilities that exist in uh, what we call the multiverse. All the different realities that could possibly exist theoretically do exist. And there are these other realities that have been conquered by these creatures called High Lords. They are basically just super-powered demigods who not only have enforced their will on their home universes, but who want to expand their uh, influence, their rulership beyond their own realities. And so what they do is they open up these gates and, and fight what's called these possibility wars by invading other realms and essentially infecting them with their reality. It's kind of like if we could take what makes Earth special, you know, our current technological level, our current spiritual level, the, the lack of magic or the amount of magic we have and, and our, our social systems and even our social systems. And we could go to some other world and say, okay, you're going to have the exact same limitations we have. Well, what happens is in Torg, several different realities all invade Earth and they use things called stelli, uh, which are basically like uh, these different obelisks and, and they they take a different shape based on the reality that they're in and they place them around the earth and they capture areas. Like, for example, uh, North America was covered greatly by what was called the living land, which was a, a huge sort of Edgar Rice Burroughs savage land type area with, with incredibly low technology, but very high spirituality. So, so things like clerical spells and shamanism was very prevalent, but you couldn't use a gun. Right. You know, some, something like that. Uh, or rather, most people couldn't use gun. And, and the area is transformed. It becomes this big jungle and there are dinosaurs roaming the earth and all these other stuff. And, and the so, Adinos who are lizard men. You know. So one minute you might be like a, a Wall Street banker and the next minute you might be a crow magnet surrounded by jungles because you had been subsumed in the reality of the living land. Exactly. And, and most people who are in these areas that get infected essentially transform. And they, they are basically stripped of all the things that make them uh, unique or special. Their, their possibility for advancement, for, for change is taken from them. But, you know, one out of, you know, a thousand people, or, or I don't remember the exact percentage, but a small number of people are able to fight off this reality and they become what's called storm knights. And these storm knights, or well, some of them become stormers because they're not heroic, but whatever. They, some of them are able to retain their own uh, reality and so they're able to move through these these different 
realities and and still operate under their own axioms. So a, a earth person who is stuck in the living land would still be able to use a gun, would still be able to, uh, you know, use the social systems that he have, would still, would not transform into like a Cro-Magnon man, but would, would instead be a modern man in these areas. And, and they can use those things. They can even go to other realms, like part of Europe was taken over by a land called Isle, which was uh, more of like a medieval fantasy type realm with you know dwarves and elves and things like that and magic and you know a, a person from you know modern earth would be there and would be able to use their own technology but also could try and use spells and magic and things like that too and uh, now when you do this when you ever you try and use something that's in a different reality than or that's not in the native reality you have a chance of disconnecting and if you do that then you're temporarily sort of subsumed by that reality. So like, you know, the Wall Street banker guy, if he if he becomes a storm knight and can use a gun in the living land, well, if he rolls a one on the die, essentially is the way it would work, then his gun would stop working and would essentially start transforming into a club. And he could try and reconnect and get his gun back and get his ability to use technology back. But that was a separate action. You had to, you know, basically force your reality on the reality you were in. It's, I mean, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but that's basically the way it works. So, so these Storm Knights are, are pretty much our player characters. They're our protagonists. They carry around a piece of their own reality with them, basically, wherever yes. they go. And can, as you say, can kind of interact with other realities with their own uh, abilities. Yeah, now, the, the ideal Storm Knight usually mixes things from their home reality and they don't have to be from Earth either. You know, you have Storm Knights who are fighting the possibility wars from the other end, you know, people right. from, from the, the native realms. But yeah, they, they would carry usually like the idea, the, the one we always liked was the Uzi toting dwarf from right. Isle uses magic <laughs> and machine guns, you know, nice. and stuff like that. Now they're called Storm Knights because when two realities collide, you get what's called a reality storm. Right. Yeah. A reality storm. That's where we got that blue and uh, red stuff I was talking about, it, it becomes this this massive uh, whirlwind of energy and reality. And, and basically, that's the two realities clashing and with one eventually becoming victorious. I mean, when the High Lords from the other realms dropped down their stelae on Earth, they were able to take over chunks of the world, but they weren't able to, able to take over the whole thing. And that's because Earth's reality is constantly fighting back. If they weren't for these stelae, then the Earth... Uh, would be able to fend off these new realities because the native reality is naturally stronger. Uh, but, and in fact, one of the things that storm knights do is they go around to these different areas and they uproot these stelae and they can reclaim parts of earth, uh, you know, for, you know, for the good of everybody. And uh, the Correct. biggest problem with that, unfortunately, is if they do that without infusing the people in there with, with hope, with, with possibilities, energy, then those people can be killed. You can be torn apart by a reality storm if you aren't protected from it. And that's that's a whole other big issue. So the adventuring paradigm in in Torg is you're going around fighting the agents of the High Lords, uprooting yep. the Stele and trying to change reality back to the core Earth realm. But to do that, you need to infuse people with hope. So you had to tell stories and you had to rally and you had to inspire. Yeah, and so that that's why a lot of the adventures don't even necessarily center around the uprooting of the stellar. They they center around uh, just you know helping out the other people and, and giving them hope. Like one of the things that's really kind of interesting too is 
the Isle Empire, the one I was talking about, the the uh, uh, not the Isle Empire, but the, uh, the, the the fantasy realm of Isle is actually run by a queen who is herself a Storm Knight. Uh, her, I think it was her brother, had been the High Lord who invaded, but she defeated him with the help of some some Storm Knights, and now she rules Isle in a in a positive way. She's trying to help the Earth fight off the other realities. So she's not taking over new realities, but she also recognizes that if she just uproots the Stelli and pulls out, she's going to kill millions of people. You know, so she's got to she's got to help those people recover their reality. And so the best way to do that is to stay there and be like a safe haven for for the good guys in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, again, oversimplifying, but there's a kind of tongue in cheek title for an adventure relating to this called Queen Strike, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and I yeah. thought that was hilarious. Yep. The, the, the other thing we have here is that when you have these what they're called cosms, these different realities. Um, they have, as, as Ed was saying, they have different technology levels, different magic levels, social and spiritual levels. But that's just actually the tip of the iceberg because they also have what are called Everlaws. And Everlaws uh, – Ed, why don't you explain to the listeners, what is an Everlaw? What does it mean? I think you might have to do that. It's been a while. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll jump into it then because this is one of my favorite things. Each reality has their own – you know, specific particular things that make them special. Yeah. And these are, these are called Everlaws. So in the, uh, the pulp adventure region, which is called the Nile Empire, they have what's called the law of drama. So whenever you're yep. in the Nile Empire, things are just more dramatic. Whenever you're in the horror realm of Arorsh, things are more horrifying, more scary, uh, outcomes, you know, tend to be more dire. Right. So you are actually when you're trans- transitioning from one realm into another realm, the tone of the adventure changes, the basic underlying fundamental kind of nature of, of the adventure of the adventure or the campaign can actually shift. Yeah, that is. And that's one of the most important things, because it's not just supposed to be a collection of mechanics. I mean, uh, you know, you, you definitely jog my memory there. And, and the big one, you know, that people really notice is because. You know, as I've described, Torg is very high adventure in and of its own self. Uh, Nile Empire being, being the, the epitome of that. But, you know, Arorsh, the, the horror realm actually has a whole set of rules to reinforce that horror thing. You know, uh, in, do you remember the, the law of horror? Not the specifics of it. I remember it was easier to die in Arorsh. Like, it, well, yeah, like the, the the odds of you getting that last minute reprieve from the explosion are much lower in Arorsh than they would be yeah. anywhere else. Well, it's it's harder to counter negativity because the the High Lord of Arorsh is much more powerful than he was the guy who basically you know, started he's the man. The he started man, yeah. the, he started the whole deal, and he has a tighter control over his realm than any other uh, High Lord. And one of the things he imposed. The law of horror is, is basically that, you know how it's talking about you can spend cards, you can spend possibilities, you can do those things to not only boost your own heroism, but also to save yourself and others from, from, you know, injury or death. Well, in Arorsh, when you try to, there's the law of fear. When you try and do that sort of thing, then every time you have to spend extra resources to keep yourself alive or keep yourself sane or to save somebody else, there's a chance that the uh, the servants of the Gaunt Man or the Gaunt Man himself will actually get to capture that energy, capture those possibilities, and use them against you later. It's it's really kind of a devious mechanic because when you're adventuring in a Rorsch, 
every time you you spend something, there's a chance that the GM is just going to say, oh, well, I'll take that and we'll keep that possibility or that that card for later use by the bad guys. And that's just right. just scary and intimidating of itself. So the, again, we've got a situation where you've got the drama of these realms, but the mechanics reinforcing that drama. Right. And even Core Earth, which is our yeah. home world, has its own Everlaws, which mm-hmm. I, I don't recall what they are. But so it's important to note that each Cosm has this difference yeah. in the basic fundamental underlying bits of the campaign. Well, one of the big things with Core Earth, and again, why like you know Seven Realms or whatever decided to invade it, is it is very rich in possibilities. And so part of the Everlaw of Earth is that that there is such a great chance for storm nights, that there is such a great chance for uh, reality shifting. We're basically, if you look at the other conquered cosms, they're places where their axioms are essentially fixed. Right. Uh, you know, the, the Nippon Empire, which has a higher technological rating than core Earth, but like a lower spiritual rating, well, that's never really going to change. Earth still has the possibility of changing. You know, it's possible, and in fact, the campaign allows for this, it's possible for areas of core Earth to change their axioms, to have, you know, higher spiritual or, or magical or technological ratings. And that's something that the Gaunt Man and, and his allies want to steal. They want to take, again, the possibility of things changing from Earth. They want to turn it into a static realm like their own so that they can feed off of its energy. So Torg is really a meta setting. It has multiple mini settings within it, which again is one of those things that makes it kind of similar to Rifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, and also, uh, I mean, one of the things that was interesting is before Torg, you had GURPS. And, and one of the things that, that, lo- that longtime GURPS players will, will generally admit is that, you know, the different GURPS realms don't really play well together. I mean, it, you know, you play GURPS supers with GURPS, you know, magic and, you know, blah, you know, you, you don't, uh, you don't have any sort of game balance, but if you play the different Torg settings, you can have a cyberpunk guy running up against a magic guy running up against dwarf of the newsy and they all, <laughs> they all are comparable. You know, they, I'm not saying that it's the greatest balance system ever or anything, but it, uh, it allows for that sort of thing. Well, if, if we could, I'd kind of like to go through these, these mini settings and talk a little bit about them. Um, I want to start with my personal favorite of all of them, which is the Nile Empire. Yeah, that's almost everybody's favorite. <laughs> the, 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 I have in the show notes here, it's all caps. It says Pulp Adventure, and yep. that's just all it is. And for the listeners, it's hard for me to explain how the Nile Empire is different than your standard pulp game, but it is. It just has a stronger – and I think this has to do with the Everlaws that it, that's, that's part of the Nile Empire, like the Law of Drama – it just has this more stronger sense of fun and adventure than in many other pulp things I've ever seen. And they did a really neat thing where they combined your typical pulp adventure genre with early superhero stuff as well. Yeah. Well, and that's that's essentially what it is. I mean, the idea of guys like Doc Savage and The Shadow, I mean, they are essentially uh, what we often call street-level superheroes. You know, uh, the, even early Batman. Well, Nile Empire went a little further than that because, like, the the basic character can actually fly. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, and that that's kind of extreme. the the big The big key, if you're making a really, really good Nile hero, uh, and and again, I don't necessarily mean like the most powerful one you can make, but actually the one that most epitomizes the realm. 
you're usually got one thing that's like super heroic. For example, like you say, the character that can fly, you know, the rocket ranger or somebody like that. And the rocket rangers are basically like the rocketeer crossed with an old, uh, the older version of Iron Man, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah, but but the Every thing is, every single time not- you guys say Rocket Ranger, I'm picturing Rocket Raccoon in my head, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, which would not, if you think about Skippy the Adenos Rocket Ranger, that wouldn't be all that far off. <laughs> oh my gosh! But uh, no, the yeah, the idea with the Rocket Rangers or with any of those guys is you, you're kind of I don't mean one trick pony because you're not, but but you're like a a sort of you know, heroic character, you know, you've probably got good strength, good speed, good intelligence. You got all this, all this other good things going through you, but you got one thing that makes you extra special. You, you can fly, you know, in this, in this armored suit that, and the armored suit is not generally more heavily armored than say, you know, bulletproof vest type thing. Uh, but you know, you can fly and bulletproof vest won't let you do that. Or like the shadow or something like we had characters that were based on all kinds of pulp guys. And it's like, you got this one way to you know, bend reality or something. Those were the really good Nile Empire characters. The ones where you started being the everyman and being able to do all kinds of different super things while mechanically allowed was not encouraged because you really wanted to have that one trick that, that really identifies you. You, and and it was, it should be a good one. I mean, it's not going to be, you know, a lousy trick, but it's going to be something extra special that everybody, you know, knows you for. That's that's your big thing. Well, speaking and, speaking of things that are really well known, I think possibly the second most interesting realm is probably the cyber papacy. Yeah. Yeah, cyber papacy was pretty awesome. I mean, it well, it combined the idea of cyberpunk, you know, and, and you know, we were all big fans of our Talsorian cyberpunk game uh, with not only the the idea of, you know, cyber implants like, you know, mechanical arms and eyes and legs and things like that, but with an interesting uh, situation called the God net. And that is the sort of, oh, the virtual reality right. know, of, uh, you know, neuromancer and such like that. And, and it did something that I always thought was really clever in, in games like uh, Shadowrun or cyberpunk or something like that. If you had a character who could surf the net, who is a, who's like a, a we, we called them deckers, you know, something like that then usually that one character had like a way of adventuring that nobody else could really participate in, which in a novel is really cool. You have a chapter where this character goes off and does something <laughs> really, really freaky, but in a game is kind of limiting. So as our previous listeners will know from yeah, many, 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 many cyberpunk and shattering episodes we've done. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, but what, um, what the cyber papacy did that was kind of cool is you had the ability to bring along your friends and your friends were essentially imps, uh, you know, using the sort of the computer game terminology of it. And so you might have like, for example, all right, I'm the Decker and I come into the God net, which by the way, is a holy version of, you know, neuromancer sort of thing. It's, it, there are angels and devils and stuff. It's, it's like a virtual heaven, virtual hell, really kind of creepy and cool all in one. Uh, but anyway, I go into the God net to do my adventure thing. I bring the rest of the party in and basically based on my skill, they're able to build, bring in characteristics of themselves. But in a lot of ways that really works great. So like, let's say I go in and I've got, you know, Oh, the rocket ranger with me. And I've got the earth, uh, action hero and I've got a Nile empire 
pulp hero and I've got, you know, a, a savage land warrior and something like that. Well, what they would do is they would bring along essentially, uh, the skills that made them the most of what they are. So they wouldn't necessarily be able to bring everything, but like, for example, the warrior guy brings along his, his combat skill. The, uh, the soldier brings along his tactical knowledge. The, uh, you know, if there's a magic using character, she brings along like her, you know, magic using skill and nothing else. She becomes an imp, a, a sort of one dimensional character. But in that one dimension, she is actually more powerful in the god net than she would have been outside of it. If that makes any sense. So like she can cast spells. She can't really do much of anything else, but her spells are tremendously effective. You know, that, and, and it's, it's really interesting because it gives that Decker the opportunity to, uh, really shine, you know, to, to do something special, but it doesn't detract from the party element. They all get to play. Yeah. And, and if I was going to say like my favorite way to describe the cyber papacy, and this may not be entirely accurate because I always felt it was like the coolest way to look at it is it's a combination of cyberpunk and Cardinal Richelieu and the, and the Musketeers. Oh God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you have now. Now there is a bit of a, a controversial thing here because it's, it's important to point out that the cyber papacy, while an interesting and very unusual setting, it did have a very negative view of Catholicism. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I'm not Catholic myself. Uh, my wife was raised Catholic, but it had a um, negative reflection of the worst of what organized religion could be. I mean, it focused on the idea of inquisitions and abuse of power and all sure. that. You know, real Catholics, people who really follow, you know, Catholicism can recognize that, no, that's not, that's not what this is. That's, that's a false pope. And in fact, we even brought that up that the idea is this guy is a false pope. This is someone who is perverting you know, the teachings of Catholicism for his own benefit, not right. a, not a comment on actual Catholicism. I'm, I'm just so, saying, I think, it, I think you'd have to agree though, that it is, it is a sensitive subject to get into when oh, you're yeah. talking about we, a, a real world religion. Oh, and we got, um, we got a lot of, uh, a lot of, I'm not exactly going to say hate mail, but we had a lot of people express concerns over that. Yeah. That, that I definitely agree with that. I just wanted to be very clear that it was not a, uh, not real Catholicism. Understood. No. Yeah. It was not, not in any way meant to be that. It was, it was supposed to say, you know, here's, here's what happens when bad people do bad things. Right. <laughs> to pull on the TV tropes thing, this is not the only fan dumb thing we're going to talk about on this <laughs> podcast when it comes to Torg. Well, and, and again, very, very clearly, I want to make it, it without a doubt to the listeners. I love Torg. I love all, almost everything about it. But so, sometimes I think looking back on something that is like 25 years old, you can point at some things and go, well, maybe that didn't work so well. Or maybe that was, you know, a little, you know, uh, off the reservation. Right? Yeah. Well, and, and I think it is important a lot of times when you do that to look at the context, the time right. context of it. You know, was it a bad decision for the time? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Is it something that we'd change now? Sometimes yes. Well, sometimes no. I mean, well, have you that, looked at the old Looney Tunes cartoons, for God's well, sakes? In, yeah. that, in that vein, why don't we talk next about uh, Nippon Tech? Tell us about that one. Well, that one is uh, one of the more difficult realms. That was, I got brought in 
when that was being, well, kind of when it was being developed, when it was being edited. You got to understand that West End being a small company, development and editing went hand in hand. We had a very right. short period of time to get a book out the door. And Nippon Tech, in a lot of ways, had some of the elements of birthright in it because the emphasis there were, were, was twofold. One was kind of the idea of high-tech uh, ninjas and samurai. And that's kind of cool and interesting. The other high part was mega corporations, big business. And there was actually a game system whereby the, the idea of the high lord of, of the Nippon Empire, or Nick, of Nippon Tech, basically propagated his system by taking over companies. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a less exciting uh, role-playing scenario <laughs> than that. But, we ha- but much like Birthright with its domain rules, we had a whole system that supported that, and we play-tested it, and we let it out the door. <laughs> and that was, you know, uh, it was an interesting idea, and it reflected it, and I bet there's nobody on the world who's played that system other than, you know, myself and the other people who are in the, in the room play-testing it because it was just kind of weird. Well, I think it's uh, fair to say that, you know, the idea of the Japanese being, you know, heavily involved in business and technology was a reflection of the times because it, as, especially when it comes to cyberpunk genres, that was a very prevalent idea in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I want to – one of the few things I can chime in on this episode on is this one. There is apparently some sort of backlash against Torg I read online. Granted, Wikipedia is my source on this, but – at the time, it was part of the genre, especially if you're talking about cyberpunk. If you're going to blame Torg for this sort of nipponophobia, you've got to blame Shatterman. You've got to blame Cyberpunk 2020. You've got to blame every single other game in the genre because that was part of the zeitgeist of the cyberpunk movement at the time. Well, looking back, I think we can certainly say it's it, it's insensitive. Like from a from a, from our perspective right now, it's a very insensitive approach to and you know, it was based I, I on real world fears at the time, right. but those fears turned out to be completely unfounded. So, well, I, I got to say from from my perspective, this is the first I've ever heard of that. I mean, I heard a lot of the Cyper Papacy stuff. I'd never heard anything about Nippon Tech. I, I can definitely look back on that and agree that that's, that's definitely an insensitive approach, I guess. But it certainly wasn't, uh, it was, so as I had it explained to me, and like I said, I didn't actually work on the book. The emphasis was supposed to be the idea that a realm was moving into a part of the world that was going unnoticed by a lot of the rest of the world, but actually noticed by the people who were there. The, the idea that the secret the real, invasion. Well, yes. Yeah. And the, and the thing was that the, right, exactly. The secret invasion that a lot of people didn't notice probably because of, like you say, the prejudices or whatever that were being reinforced by the, by the setting. And that's unfortunate, but also in, in the, in the story context, the people who were there did notice and were fighting back. I mean, you had, you know, the, the, you know, Japanese, uh, storm knights who were like, this isn't the way this is supposed to be. This is, you know, not right. We're going yeah. to fix it. Uh, so yeah, like I said, this is, I'd never actually ever heard of any of the, of that stuff. And I'm, I'm very well, sorry if that sort of thing, uh, you know, hurt, you know, offended people or anything that would the be only terrible. Other, 
The only other thing I want to point out, well, I, I'm sure that I'm sure that people realize that this was not intentional, but um, well, I mean, but it still should be should be stated that yeah, that's uh, you know now now that I think about it that that is you know it is too bad that we didn't even notice that at the time that well that one we thing. Didn't, didn't even think about that. Like I said, it was, part, I it was part of the here. pop culture at the time because you had yeah. um, uh, Michael Crichton's uh, Red Sun novel yeah. and movie came out about the same time. They were about the same topics and got kind of the same flack at the same time, but mm-hmm. it was much more subdued because... Well, let me just point out one thing here. The name of the book is Nippon Tech, and if and and in Japanese, their word for Japan is is Nihon or Nippon. So yeah. it's it's like you made a book called America Incorporated. <laughs> that was about America taking. That was about like a secret invasion spreading from America, and and just so the listeners understand kind of where that is coming from. Uh, I believe there is actually a book that <laughs> probably, oh, probably. no doubt, no doubt. Uh, just, Jennifer uh, Jennifer Government. Well, Jennifer, that well that's a fantastic novel, by the way. Yeah. Oh my God. So good. But, but yeah, that, that was, I mean, it was certainly not meant to, you know, not, not to the same extent of the cyber papacy, but it was also not meant to be any sort of judgment on existing, you know, sure. Japanese culture or, or reality. It was certainly supposed to be, here's this, this horrible extreme that is from a different planet. Right. But is trying to ape what they see of, uh, of earth. They're trying to, to, uh, to copy it. And, and the people who are there are noticing and are fighting back. They're saying, this is not us. This is not the way we believe well, things should be. Let's so talk about I, another place. That's a different planet too. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is a, a, another really interesting realm. Uh, it's called Tharkold. Ah, Yes, and, that was one of the later invasions, one of the two yeah. post-launch invasions. Now, the thing about Tharkhold that I love, and if I, it's it's the way that it's sort of the elevator pitch. And if if you if you don't mind, Ed, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out, and you, see, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. No, please do. But basically, the way I see Tharkhold is that it's the Terminator meets Hellraiser. That's a pretty good elevator pitch. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one before, but I think that that works a lot. Oh wow, awesome. So you have demons and you have cybernetics and robotics and you have uh, Tharkold. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about Tharkold, Ed. Well, on the, I mean, your your elevator pitches are very good good summary. The one of the tricky things with Tharkold is it, like I said, it's one of the post-launch realms. So it it got introduced to the game setting after the box set came out. Right. But <clears throat> the the um, the seeds were sown in the original novels and in the original box set because. Tharkold was supposed to be part of the original invasion, but it lost. It, it basically couldn't drop its stelae. Uh, the, the demons, I mean, they really were called like cyber demons or demons of Tharkold could not get a hold on Earth. And so they were repelled. Uh, but later on, we were able to, to make a second push. Uh, but that was interesting because we wanted to showcase the idea that just because these people tried to attack Earth didn't mean they'd always succeed. And Tharkold is kind of interesting because in, in a way it combines a lot of the worst of, uh, the cyber papacy with the, with the high tech stuff and the demonic, you know, sort of semi-religious background and Arorsh, the horror realm. Uh, and that's both good and bad. I mean, it's good in that you get something like Hellblazer meets the Terminator, but it's bad in that you're kind of, you know, skimming stuff off from two other realms. Hold on, one and, quick second. Uh, Hellraiser or Hellblazer? Hellraiser. Hellraiser. Okay, I think. Well, although, 
Although, it's to be a, honest, Hellblazer wouldn't necessarily be yeah. that far off either because it is another magic realm. Which, for the audience, Hellblazer was the name of the comic book that Constantine is based on, right. both the movie and yeah. TV series. Uh, they changed the name for both because uh, – It was the, too similar to Hellraiser. Yeah. Exactly. Now, to be, to be clear, it's actually more like Hellblazer because the demons are actual demons and not the weird, freaky uh, Cenobites. But the Terminator part, and this is the thing I think is cool, is that Tharkold is kind of that post-apocalyptic future where yeah. humanity has been struggling to fight off. Although in this case, it's not Skynet and the machines. It's, it's a bunch of demons who are also machines. Yeah. yeah so you can, yeah. I'm sorry. I just want to really quick. You, you can have a character like Reese or John Connor – who comes from Tharkold who's fighting against these demons. And that's kind of cool. And awesome. Heck, you can have a character like the Terminator yeah. who has been like reprogrammed and stuff. Yes. And that's very much what we were trying to go for. It's, it's one of the smallest realms. It only basically takes over Los Angeles. And, uh, <laughs> Which is probably a cultural statement. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it, uh, and it comes in and, uh, you know, and it's trying to get a, get a hold of things, but it is just very, like you say, post-apocalyptic sort of thing. It's a very much a, a realm of violent despair. I mean, right. the, the Arorsh realm has a lot of despair in that, but that's more the sort of the Gothic horror or the, or the Cthulhu Lovecraftian mm-hmm. uh, despair. Whereas, whereas the uh, Tharkhold is an, an area of torture and suffering. You know, it's very hellish. So moving on from that <clears throat> one, uh, there's also, we briefly talked about the living land. Yep. And this is uh, where the uh, the dinos, the, the lizard man guys are from. Yeah. Uh, one of the problems with Torg in a lot of ways was the living land. Uh, we saw that kind of early. We, we basically dropped the big no-tech, no-magic, high-spirit, you know, dinosaur realm on North America. And that probably wasn't the wisest choice because – People, you know, I mean, one of the things we learned from games like Gamma World is people like playing through ruins of their own hometown. <laughs> but, but if you're in your own hometown, and again, like people from all over the world played Torg, but you know, our largest audience was in North America. Uh, people would be like, well, geez, I, I mean, this, this is a dinosaur realm where I can't really use a gun or tech or anything like that. And, and it's everything's covered in, in, Fog. I mean, one of the things people forget about the living land was the, the fog. It was one of the, basically one of the, those uh, laws you were talking about where it basically caused things to decompose incredibly quickly. And your, uh, your field of vision was something like 10 meters, you know, your line of sight, which meant that there were creatures in, uh, the world who had never seen their own tails. You know, because they were so big and right. 10, 10 meters is only a little over 30 feet. So, you know, a dinosaur <laughs> didn't know how big it was. And and so there were, there were limitations in there. But it was an interesting world. But we ended up almost replacing it eventually with the uh, land basically below. the land below, which was like a hollow world sort of thing. And it, it was much more like what the original designers kind of had wanted the living land to be. It was a much more Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Tarzan or Jules Verne, your journey to the center of the earth sort of place where, where you could have fantastic jungle adventures, but you could still have, you know, some amount of technology, you know, it was, it, right. and you know, there were a lot of good things about the living land, but it, it was probably our least popular realm. I, I like to think of it like, you know, if I wanted to put my cool spin on it, you know, it would be more like the land of the lost. 
you know, with dinosaurs yeah. and slea stacks and, you know, the strange ruins of ancient civilizations and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the funniest things about it was, so the Adenos, uh, the, the lizard men of, of the living land were not originally supposed to be these essentially saurian humanoids. They were really supposed to look a lot more like uh, miniature Tyrannosaurus rexes or velociraptors in a lot of ways or something. Uh, then somebody pointed out the problem that Tyrannosaurus rex really couldn't use his hands to even like reach his own mouth. He's got tiny little arms. <laughs> and so we used to make really horrible but give him miming those things about thingies and he's unstoppable. <laughs> we always wanted to show the high lord of uh, the original high lord of, of the living land trying to eat french fries and being very frustrated. Uh, but but anyway, so so I mean the the Adenos themselves actually became fairly popular, and we used to put them in a lot of areas outside the Living Land. You know, stormers. And I was talking about Skippy, the Adenos Rocket Ranger. That Love that one guy. Of the, one of the designers' uh, <laughs> favorite characters that he actually played in our campaign was a Adenos who had who had gone to the Nile Empire and and uh, become a rocket ranger. Well, it's if you think about it though, the Noble Savage is totally in line with Pulp Adventure. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the, the Nile Empire probably, you know, in terms of reality and laws, probably just welcomed him in with open arms going, aha, we have our noble savage. <laughs> That's what we thought. Yeah. So, but, but anyway, yeah. So the living land – and the other thing was uh, one of the first books I worked on when I was uh, brought into West End was Pixod's Practical Grimoire, which is – basically a collection of magic spells. Uh, uh, Torg had a very interesting and very difficult to learn magic system. And my first task was essentially to rewrite it <laughs> and make it so that people could understand it. And, uh, you know, well, I, I think I did a pretty good job with that. It was one of those systems that could be pretty heavily abused if you were careful, but it, but it had a lot of stuff. We, we filled up a whole book full of different spells you could use. And we had a whole system by our, by which you could create your own. Well, the thing was, Living Land wasn't about magic. It was about more shamanistic stuff, miracles, which is what we called them. And we never put out a book really for that. And so the Living Land, in a way, got short shrift in that it had some really cool, interesting tools, but they just didn't really get utilized because I think after it came out, nobody really knew what to do with it, the, the Living Land, that is. Right. And that was unfortunate. Well, we've covered Living Land. We talked about Cyber Papacy. We talked about Nippon Tech and Tharkold. Nile Empire. A little bit about the land below. Do we want to say anything more about Arorsh or Isle? Well, so Isle um, was your kind of generic medieval fantasy. The, it was really uh, popular because of the magic system and also because it was the easiest one for people to conceptualize blending with tech, you know, dwarves with machine guns, uh, you know, which is uh, a great image. Yeah. Ogres with electric samurai swords, you know, things like that. It, it was, it was fairly easy concept for people to grasp. You could, we all have read fiction or have seen comic books or movies where somebody from a fantasy realm ends up in modern earth or vice versa. So that was an easy one, but it also, in a lot of ways, it was one where we didn't really flex our muscles creatively. There was no additional spin. I mean, even the living land, you end up with the walking, talking dinosaurs and the high spiritual content. That's something that's a little bit different than your average land of the lost thing. Isle was fantasy straight up. 
pretty yeah, typical it, fantasy. And it, heck, it was even primarily based out of the British Isles. So yeah, yeah, we we did some interesting stuff with it, but but not not anything I thought groundbreaking. It was it was a nice place. It was solid. People liked it, but. I don't know that it was super notable. It was also, I mean, it had the one High Lord who wasn't really fighting against Earth. And and while that was good to have that, it also made it, you know, not a really high conflict place. We had adventures there, but it was never someplace we were like, oh my God, we got to stop Isle from spreading its cool magic. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so okay. it was a little bit of a missed opportunity maybe there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, there's another realm too. There's... um. They're the space star, gods. The, is it star gods or space gods? Space gods. Space gods. Okay. Yeah, space gods was interesting. The uh, the designer, uh, the, we, because we were West End, because we we're a small company, most of our books had to be designed freelance. And while later on that meant a lot of uh, extra overtime for the designers who were in house, like myself, early on it meant contracting stuff out to freelancers and hoping they were able to do the job. Well, when I got the Space Gods manuscript in, I remember a big chunk of it was essentially copy from the encyclopedia describing South America. What? It was like, yeah. <laughs> it was like, what the heck is this? This isn't game material. So a lot of it had to be rewritten pretty fast. And so Space Gods was supposed to be another one of those semi-helpful realms. You know, not all the space gods were bad guys. They they actually had inv- invaded um, Earth's cosm, but more from outer space. And so they actually did land on Earth. Their, their stellae were different. They were, instead of imposing their reality they were sort of enhancing our reality they were they were trying to sort of elevate us now granted there were still a lot of bad things that went along with it including essentially this really horrible space plague which was a like a sentient uh uh micro uh not microcosm but a sentient uh microorganism that was trying to take over the space gods realm themselves. And so, you know, we were essentially helping them fight that off while they were trying to help us fight the possibility wars. The big problem with space gods was scale. You're sitting here basically saying you got something of like Star Trek level technology and you're going to drop it on the planet. And suddenly you've got plasma guns and lasers and, and armor and all this other stuff that has to really feel pretty high tech. Well, how do you have something like that? where everything else just becomes useless. Right. And so we had to put all kinds of weird limitations on it. And it was, it was a really interesting book. And, and I mean, I, I learned a lot about, you know, South and Central America, you know, trying to fix that thing up. And we did a lot of kind of fun stuff with it, but it never got the support that it needed to really kick off. Like Tharkold, we did a whole city book that had a bunch of adventures and cool stuff in it. Space Gods, we put the the book out. It sold pretty well, but there was never like a follow up adventure. Uh, even our our in house magazine Infiniverse didn't really support a lot of the stuff that that was in it because it was one of those kind of things where we're like, you know, if everybody just goes down there, grabs some armor and weapons, they're going to have no problem wading their way through everywhere else. <laughs> you know, so Can it, we- it was. It was interesting that way. Can we actually explore the Infiniverse thing a little bit? Can you tell us like what was cool about that? Oh, my God. Infiniverse was 10 years ahead of its time. If the internet had been what it is today... Oh, my God. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Yeah. So, Infiniverse, for those people who don't know it, 
was the monthly magazine we put out. Uh, and, and when I say magazine, I'm, I'm using the pretty bare end of the term. It was a newsletter, black, black and white newsletter. Hey, it was 32 pages long though. I mean, it was, it was a significant chunk of stuff. We put it out every month and it included, um, you know, letters to the editor from, from players and stuff, but it also focused mainly on new content. We put out every month, we would put out like a short adventure. We put out, uh, these things we called dispatches, which were basically like news from the front where we would take every realm and we'd put some like, like cool little news item that a GM could use to enhance their campaign. And we put out these things called rumors where, uh, you actually would hear like, Oh, we hear that this sort of thing is going on in the Nile Empire, or we hear that this sort of thing has happened. And players would basically get to send back what we called a reader response form that was the back page of every Infiniverse and the back page of every adventure. And they would fill out essentially a short questionnaire that would say what rumors and news are true, which are false, how adventures uh, came out in their game. Like, did they succeed in stopping the High Lord of Earth? Did they succeed in foiling Dr. Mobius's nefarious plot? Did they, you know, do this or that or the other thing? And we would input all that information into a database. And when I say we, I mostly mean me. I did it myself after Greg Gordon left the company. Uh, and, and we would tally all that information. And then every year we would put out an Infiniverse update. And I still have copies of these things, which was a, uh, like 128 page book. And it basically said, okay, here's the state of the Infiniverse. And it redrew the, uh, the maps of the co- of the, uh, invading cosms. It, uh, it kicked, it told you which rumors were the most true and which were the most false. And when I say that, I mean, because remember, Every infinite in the Infiniverse was the name for all the different multiverses that were around. So, you know, Ross, you're in your Infiniverse. Maybe you defeated the High Lord of Earth. Daryl, in your Infiniverse, maybe you didn't. So that means there is a new <laughs> High Lord of Earth and there's a whole cosm <laughs> devoted to that. And we would basically say, well, in I'm paraphrasing here, but like in 75% of the universes out there, the High Lord of Earth was defeated. But that means in 25% they did succeed. And so let's say you never played that adventure. You could actually just roll a die and determine whether or not there was a High Lord of Earth. And you could then tell your players, hey, while you guys were doing this other stuff, some guy dropped down a bunch of stelli and he proclaimed himself the High Lord of Earth. And now, yeah. you know, Mexico is is this weird different reality you know? it was a reflection of a living campaign that would have been so awesome if the the uh, the accessibility of the internet had been around but with yeah with, with the newsletter format unfortunately it just kind of it, it didn't quite reach that potential that it was that no, it had no, we, it we missed had, it by what a couple of years because this yeah, was really 93 oh, yeah, 94 yeah. 95 i think yeah i mean this the infiniverse the first infiniverse newsletter came out with the box set in 90 and we updated that thing monthly until I left the company in 95. And after that, I mean, I think they still did it like bi-monthly or something. Uh, but it was, it was actually a pretty good bargain too. It was not very expensive and you got a yearly subscription and you got all this, this cool information, all this cool stuff. You know, I mean, what, 32 pages a month. Yeah. You know, for, for, I, I think it was something like eight bucks or something like that. And it was, you know, so a lot of cool stuff. And, and we had, I think about at, at its height, I think maybe we had about 2000 subscribers. 
which doesn't sound like a lot, but you figure each subscriber is a member of an active campaign because they were sending us in right. letters. I mean, I'd get anywhere between three and 500 response forms a month, not counting the months wow. we put out an adventure. Can you imagine so we'd have, if that had been emails? <laughs> yeah. well, the thing is, if, yeah. if we'd been able to do that over the internet, I would have just set up a web page and let people click to their heart's content. Like and, a wiki or something. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. You know, yeah. That, now, that, that. let me tell you, Grandpa Daryl's going to tell you about what the internet was like in the early 90s. Oh, God. Now, <laughs> there was this thing called Usenet, and that's where a yeah. lot of the role-playing gaming people... Bulletin board yep. systems. We were, on Usenet. We, were on, we were on Usenet. We were on Genie. Oh, God, we Genie. Were, we were original <laughs> uh, AOL supporters. AOL, CompuServe. This was yep. the internet back in the day. It wasn't yep. quite the... All text, no <laughs> images, or very few. Pay by the minute. Oh, God. Don't remind me of that. I ran up so many bills well, on my parents' credit the, uh, cards. We were fortunate because we got free access because we were providing content. <laughs> but, yeah. We're uh, we're unfortunately getting close to our time limit here. So I want to ask Ed to give us that story about Brian Schomburg. And then we're going to jump to our final thoughts. Okay. So everybody should contact Brian Schomburg and tell them that they've heard this. But, <laughs> so back when we were doing the Infiniverse newsletter, this is actually a great segue. We started getting these letters from a young man in Wisconsin named Brian Schomburg. And the letters were often very insightful things into our game and complimentary stuff and questions. But they also always included a three-panel comic. Uh, I believe it was called High Lord Humor. And it was a little humor comic for uh, for Infiniverse. Uh, well, actually, it was just given to us, but we, we asked permission and we published these in Infiniverse. And they were just these little fun little satires, often, uh, you know, making fun of situations like the, the whole idea of the Adinos High Lord not being able to eat French fries or, you know, something like that. And they were always pretty funny. And so at one point we decided we needed to hire another graphic artist. And, I said, hey, why don't we talk to this Brian Schomburg kid? And I don't know what prompted it, but everybody at the company had just sort of assumed that Brian was like 15 years old. <laughs> and, and I don't know why, but I, I think I even assumed that. But I said, well, we should at least find out because this, kid, this kid's doing some nice work. Well, and it turned out he was only a couple of years younger than most of us. You know, he's certainly, you know, he graduated from college and everything. And so we brought him out and he joined the company. And Brian from Wisconsin, you know, left Wisconsin to come to northeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, he became, you know, uh, a very good graphic artist for the for the company. And he taught us games like That's My Cow and... uh those are my cows <laughs> and other cow related driving games because, you know, he's from Wisconsin. So <laughs> one of the most talented graphic artists and a very, very wonderful guy. Uh, but yeah, everybody should, should contact Brian and ask him if those are his cows and <laughs> ask, him about, ask him about the high Lord humor comics and, you know, don't tell him where you got this information. All right. Well, it, let's, uh, let's jump into our final thoughts about Torg so we can, uh, the, the, the bartender has given me the eye and the Imperial Guard is going to be stopping by any moment to kick us out. So um, I'm actually going to start, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with Daryl on this because he he is the newcomer to Torg and he's learned pretty much everything he knows from this actual recording. Pretty so, much, yeah. <laughs> so Daryl, final thoughts on Torg as a complete Torg newbie. 
I completely missed out on something. Uh, this looks like it was something that was really, really awesome that was going on at the same time I was just getting into the gaming uh, industry, the gaming culture. 1990 was a year, a year after Shadowrun, which was, as you know, a year before I got into gaming because I got into it in 91. Oh my god, I missed something epic here. This looks like it was taking all the things that was going on in gaming at the time and was really shaking things up. And I'm kind of curious as to what the state of Torque is today. Cause I, I know there was an email blast that when it's changed, the intellectual property rights changed hands a couple of times. Currently, a company called Ulysses Spiel owns the IP. Oh, which is a German company, I believe. Correct. And the last thing I've heard was in July of, um, and I actually researched this before the show, uh, July of this year, uh, 2014, there was an announcement that there will be new Torg stuff coming next year. Except that this is also about that. what the third or fourth time that we've been promised new Torg material. Yeah. So I really hope it comes to comes to fruitation this time. Well, yeah. well Daryl, you, you may have missed the the original launch and everything, but that stuff is still out there and available. And heck, I've got a bunch of it in my basement. You should, <laughs> you should pick up a set and get Ross to run you a game because it's you know still play just fine. <laughs> my mailing address is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, now for our special guest, Ed Stark. What are your final thoughts on Torg as a – I mean this is primarily about the setting. But if you want to talk about the game too, you know, that's absolutely fine. Well, Torg was uh, really the first game I ever worked on professionally. I mean I'd done a little bit of publishing before that. So I always have a soft spot in my heart for that. You know, For the setting, I would say it was just a lot of fun because it gave – me as a GM, as a, as a designer, the opportunity to just play around and mash things together. I mean, it, it suffered it a little bit from the fact that it was a bit of a mashup game and it was hard for people to understand both mechanically and story wise what it was. But those that did, I think got a lot out of it because they saw that even with the, you know, occasional warts, those were some of those blemishes were some of the things that made it special. You know, there, like I said, there are games I run today where I pull things from Torg back into them. I mean, I just ran a game that essentially used the Torg result point system and the drama deck, you know, just because I like them and people seem to still enjoy it. I don't know if that's a great final thought, but I just no, I think have, a, have a soft, soft spot for my, for that system. I, I think that's an excellent uh, final thought on it. If you if you ask me for my final thoughts, I love Torg. I mean, just to be clear, like I've I've done a lot of thinking about Torg. I've actually written about Torg, and um, if you go to the wiki page about Torg, I am one of the references in my review <laughs> of the system. Great. Uh, just so you know uh, where I'm coming from on this when I say I love Torg. I think you know our discussion today. We we have talked about some of the warts on it, and we've talked about some of the things that made it awesome. It is a 25-year-old setting, and there's always going to be good and bad things when you look back that far at, at things that were you know written back in the day. But it is absolutely a classic milestone in the industry, I would say. And as Ed has pointed out, you know, there's a lot of things you can take, like the drama deck, and, and it's just a beautiful idea. And I wish it, it could have been used more in, in other games because it's a really neat mechanic. There's just this, this unforgettable 
fun of having that mashup that you can play where you can have Jack Burton on the same team as a lizard man on the same team as the Rocketeer. That's an amazing group of guys <laughs> to, to get venture with. Oh and, yeah. And it will, I will always have a soft spot, spot, soft spot for it for a very personal reason, because it was the first RPG I ever played with my father. And, uh, that's a big special thing to me. So I'm glad I was able to run that game. <laughs> oh, it was so much fun, man. That was the runaway train ep- uh, game where yep. we had to try and stop it. It was cool. And I want to say one big takeaway of the entire episode is that Torque was ahead of its time. Agreed. Absolutely agree. It had come out even five years, if not a decade later, it would have been a huge thing. In 2000, oh, yeah. I think it would have made a bit much bigger splash than it did in 1990, for real. Oh, I agree. And again, this is outsider looking in. The impressions that I'm getting looking at it from now, oh my God, I'm seeing so much of the influence that this game mm-hmm. has had on the modern gaming landscape. Well, Ed, um, if there's something new coming out from you that you want to you know, make sure and mention to our listeners or if they can find you on the interweb somewhere, where would that be? Well, I would recommend people check out well, the Elder Scrolls Online. That's what I've been working on and will continue to work on for quite some time. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's the best way to find me is I'm still poking around in Tamriel and doing what I can to make, a, make an MMO. You know, so, it's a really uh, awesome MMO, too. I hope so. And, and uh, you know, you can find me writing the occasional thing. I uh, write short stories and such now and again. So, you know, just, just Google me and, and remember, I, I'm not the one where winter is coming. So, <laughs> <laughs> although there's an interesting story that suggests you might have, in oh, fact, the genesis oh, of that. It's entirely possible, but it's a, <laughs> it, it is apocryphal until George R. R. Martin actually chimes in. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, jo- uh, George R. R. Martin apparently chimed in on that. And you can go back to one of our previous episodes where we talked about Birthright, <laughs> where that story comes up. Yeah. Oh, good lord! Okay, so, so I did mention that story in the past, but um, interesting I, name. Yep. Uh, Ed, as always, it is a, uh, a pleasure to have you join us here on the show. We'd love to have you come back sometime. Well, I would love to, and and thank you so much for being patient with me and get finally getting me on here. Had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, on behalf of Daryl and myself, we want to extend our gratitude to you and to the listeners for checking out this awesome game, this awesome setting, Torg. So until next time, may all your hits be crits. Hi, this is Sean Patrick Fannin, founder and chief visionary officer of Evil Beagle Games. We're the publisher of Shintar, the epic high fantasy setting for Savage Worlds. It's like Lord of the Rings meets Die Hard. We also published the very cool and quirky deck-building game, Colossal Clash. The Beagle's proud to sponsor the Gamer's Tavern, a place where you can relax and get schooled at the same time. Seriously, you listen to these guys, you get free points on your gamer knowledge score. So grab a drink and listen to my friends Ross Watson and Daryl Mott as they interview the best and the brightest in the hobby about all kinds of great stuff, or live play something really cool at the virtual table. And remember, Evil Beagle Games. Bad dog, good games. Now somebody beer me!